0: Hello and welcome to our Meet the Writer's Best Of show. I'm Georgina Godwin. The literary world is full of prizes, but there are really just four big ones based in Britain that have the ability to change the trajectory of a writer's career to boost sales and really influence the publishing industry. They are the Booker, the Bailey Gifford for non-fiction, the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comedy writing and the Women's Prize for fiction. And today, I'm bringing you extracts from interviews with the people that won those prizes in 2022. We'll begin with the Sri Lankan writer, Shihan Karuna Tilaka, who won this year's prize for his novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida.
1: Bodies turning up in 1989 was a commonplace thing, but... um, I think a few of the more famous ones were when when people were killed from the middle class or the, the, the ruling class. And so three characters that I want to write about were Richard D'Souza, who was um, an abducted journalist uh, who, who was killed in 1989. Rajini Thirunagamma, who was a Tamil moderate who was murdered by the Tamil Tigers. So it's not like there was... You know, and I, I make this point in the book, it's not like there were good guys and bad guys. That's why you can't really make a movie about this, because everyone was, the Tamil Tigers may have had a worthy cause, but they were also turned out to be quite fascist. And, and so there was, I just thought, what if Richard de and Rajini Thiranagama, and also I had a third character, based on a less known JVP activist, a Marxist activist called Daya Patirana. So I just thought, what if these three characters met in the afterlife? What kind of arguments would they have? And um, that was really the seeds for this. And um, then it sort of, I guess it, it evolved from there. So the characters of Mali almeida he was initially based on Richard de but um, I think he moved on. And so he became a war photographer. So that's what, what he is in the book. A war photographer who has seen unspeakable things on the battlefield and he finds himself dead. And um, according to Sri Lankan or Asian mythology, there is this theory that the spirit hovers around for seven days. Before, So we have like almsgivings throughout the first seven days at the wake and then on the seventh day we, we have a big alms-giving. So the idea is that the spirit then moves on to where it's going. So it just seemed like a good a good little conceit for a thriller that you have seven days, this guy has seven days to solve his own murder and um, he, because he was a freelance war photographer, he shot carnage for all sides. So there was a number of people who would have wanted him dead. So that also allowed me to talk about the different parties that were involved in the conflict in 1989. But yeah, at the heart of it, it's a guy solving their own murder, and also he's he's got a box full of photographs of all the atrocities of Sri Lanka hidden under his bed, and he wants that to be seen, because he believes that if those photographs were seen, then maybe all the conflict, uh, naively of course, thinks that. So this, this is really the premise of the story, guy solving his own murder and trying to find a way that his photographs get seen.
0: Now, uh, in, in the book, obviously, it's set beyond death and you've had to do what they call world building. You've had to establish a, a set of rules of, about how this, this other space works. You have the light, you have the helpers, you have to decide how much uh, your, your, your dead protagonist can react with, with people still living and so on. Uh, tell me about that process.
1: That was a big challenge as well because obviously I couldn't interview many dead people or really do much research on the afterlife, right? So I I, I did hang around cemeteries. I did went through a period where I visited haunted houses. Never seen a ghost still, and I, I don't particularly want to. So that, then I kind of I had to borrow from mythology, and there's plenty. Look, there's plenty of yeah philosophy mythology on the afterlife, especially in Eastern literature. But I think the epiphany came to me um, sitting in a visa office or sitting in a parcel office in Sri Lanka, and I just realized that this idea of and it's you know it's not an original idea I've seen it done before the, the the afterlife as an office as a kind of waiting room, and I realized maybe that makes sense that the afterlife in Sri Lanka is as disorganized as a passport office in in the mortal world, and that's why these dead souls are like they have to get a piece of paper signed at this floor, and then they've got to get their sins registered, and they have to go through all this bureaucratic process before their seven moons in order to go to the next place. That just seemed like an absurdist idea, and it appealed to my sensibilities that, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for satire. So, once I had that, I kind of worked on the idea of the afterlife as bureaucracy. And so everyone has seven days, and in those seven days, they, they have to make peace with their, their past and their sins and whatever hang-ups they have, and then move on. And this is being, you know, in the Bardo, it's part of the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. And also, just keeping it to seven moons, I didn't have to explain what... Because the light is a ubiquitous concept. In most, you, you get this in near-death experience, even in yeah, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea of walking into the light. So I thought, yeah, okay, I can have the light and I can have this seven day bureaucracy where this guy is kind of trying to get his form signed so he can move on. And yeah, so it started from there and uh, that was really part of the world building. And then you just had to, I just had to have a few, rules. but the good thing about not meeting any dead people, no one can tell me that I'm wrong about this, right? So I can, as long as I can make it convincing and have rules that are consistent, then uh, it's gonna work. So, yeah, I started off with a lot of world building, a lot of rules and all that. I I really pared it down. Really, all you need to know is that you can only travel where your body has been or where your name is spoken. So that allowed Mali also to kind of travel to wherever people were talking about him, which was a good plot device. But, yeah, the afterlife is a bureaucracy. The idea that there are lots of these restless spirits wandering around Sri Lanka, whispering bad thoughts into people's ears... Could be an explanation about why we've had so many tragedies. I haven't heard a better one. Yeah.
0: Do you believe in the afterlife yourself?
1: <laughs> okay, that's a big question. Well, I'm. Uh, I'm not gonna say that I don't believe. I, like I said, I, I went to this, these these um, haunted houses and I took down the ghost stories. I didn't see any evidence of anything, and that's why I think they make the the point about the only gods worth worth worshipping are chance and electricity. I think that's a major theme of the book. Personally, I, I'm, I'm happy to sit on the fence. I'm not going to say that I know anything. But then again, no-one else does. But I think it was a useful device in which to write, write the story from. But, yeah, I guess I'll get to verify it one day.
0: Sheehan Karuna Tilaka, winner of the Booker Prize 2022. Next, we go to the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction, a prize that I actually judged this year. It was won by Catherine Rundle for her book Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne. So I think my pitch for John Donne would be this. He is difficult. He is
2: famously difficult. But I was hoping with the book to offer people the tools to unpick him because he is a little bit like cracking a safe and there is endless gold inside. He lived at a time where he understood horror. The Renaissance was a brutal time to be alive, all the glorious gilded quality of the literature. His family, Catholic, in a Protestant time, were persecuted. He probably saw his great-uncle hung, drawn and courted. He lost his brother. He lost six children. He lost his wife. He knew horror and sorrow. And yet he insisted throughout his life, relentlessly, furiously, on awe, on astonishment at living, on, on the great beauty of the human body, on the idea that, you know sex and, and love might together be a sort of semaphore for the human living infinite. He had a sense of us as wondrous. And I think to read his poetry, especially his love poetry, if you will just persevere with it, that little bit of extra time it takes to, to get used to the tone, to get used to the voice, to understand, he offers you a vision of what it might be like to love which is so rich and so nuanced and salutes the strangeness in us with such tenacity and flair. He sort of liberates you from the sense that you should be neat and predictable in your love. He he liberates us from anti-intellectualism. He is a kind of that burning original, that is the thing he offers us. And of course, he went to prison for his love. He did. So famously, John Donne, in his 20s, late 20s, he married a young woman called Anne Moore. And she was the niece of his employer, Sir Thomas Edgerton, who was the keeper of the Great Seal, one of the most important men in in England. And she was above him socially. Her father was Sir George Moore. She came from a beautiful stately home in in the south of England. And Donne was building for himself a reputation as one of the smartest men of the age. But he was a Catholic. The family had lost almost all of their money. And he, you know, a family of jailbirds. And they married in secret. No one knows how he persuaded her to. She was 17, which was not an unusual age at the time. And I think he thought that there would be trouble when it was discovered, we think he had no idea how much trouble. He was thrown in jail, and not even in the Tower of London, which had a sort of glamour to it, in the Fleet Prison, which was a, a debtor's prison, where the floor was said to be carpeted with lice. And, and his life sort of collapsed. He was fired when, in the end, he, he was allowed to return. He was let out of prison and he was allowed to take Anne with him, but they had nowhere to go. They had no home. They had no money. So, certainly, this sort of great leap of love by perhaps the greatest love poet our time was a disaster
0: and I mean he he came back from that and that's the thing about him is he kept reinventing himself take us through some of his various iterations
2: exactly so this is why the book is called The Transformations of John Donne because he was so many things he was a sort of wunderkind he was a a Catholic he was a sailor on the high seas a kind of legalised pirate a privateer for Queen Elizabeth not a very successful one he was a politician not a very successful one he was a a lawyer a law student he was then a Bird. He was a lover. He was then a Protestant at some point, And we do not know when he converted. One of the great debates around Dunn scholarship is was it a real conversion or not? You know, was it that he realised he wouldn't make much progress as a Catholic and he understood that he had a brilliant mind, but he understood that it would be no good to him? Or was it a real conversion? People did. It was not that uncommon to convert at the time. And then, of course, he became a priest and then he became the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral one of the most powerful clerics of his age and one of the most famous. And when he died, he was famous not as a poet but as a preacher. There's an amazing account of when he was in his middle age in his late 40s. He was incredibly beautiful his whole life. It's, it's probably quite key to his success with women. He was gorgeous. But by the time he um, he was in his middle age, he had a sort of stately dignity and I had a big beard. And he was preaching at one of the chapels at the Inns of Court And people flocked to see him in such a crush that there's this quite dry, laconic little uh, report of it where it says two or three men were taken up dead for the time, which doesn't mean dead, it just means unconscious. And as far as we can tell, because usually they would record if he stopped, he didn't stop, just kept (laughs) preaching as, you know, these bloodied men were carried off, quite ruthless. He had a ruthless streak.
0: Yes. So how much research is there out there? Because it seems to me you've you've done something perhaps a little like Hilary Mantel, where you've gathered all these little bits of information and, and had to kind of put them together in a way that absolutely works. How much information is there? So this is the thing. If you are a Dunn scholar, you have to make your peace with the
2: idea that you will have to enjoy trying to piece together the gaps. We know a lot about bits of his life, but he had a belief that essentially the letters he received from his friends were almost a part of them. So when they died, he burned the letters. And so we have only one half of the correspondence. We have the correspondence that he wrote to other people, which his son published after his death. But his son was a raging snob who changed the names of the addressees of the letters so that it sounded like he was writing to like lords and dukes. And in fact, he was just writing to his friends from university. John Donne Jr., not a great guy.
0: (laughs) But you put all that together, somehow you've, you've found a way through. And the way you, I mean, you talked about his great beauty earlier and everyone I know who's read the book come away feeling we are a little bit in love with him.
2: So this was what I hoped so much, that that we would reckon he was worth being in love with, that he is worth your attention and your love because he was deeply faulted. He had a a misogynistic streak that would be foolish to ignore, although, as I say in the book, trying someone for misogyny on our own terms would, of course, just be anachronistic and stupid. But even for his time, there is a a bitterness in some of his writing about women. But there is also a marvel to it. There is a sense that he, he was a person who understood a great deal about us. He was able to hold love and dread in the same hand. He was able to sort of bring the conflicting impulses of the human heart and look at them both steadily and with a certain ferocity of love. And he is worth loving. And of course, you know, there's that thing that we all know, greater men than Shakespeare or Dunn have lived and died in silence in the cotton fields, but of the writers who we are lucky enough that they laid down what they knew and it survived the waste of time,
0: he is one of those for whom I am most grateful. Catherine Rundell, winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. And now onto to some biting satire with the American winner of the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comedy writing. This is Percival Everett for his book, The Trees. Incidentally, Percy was also shortlisted for the Booker this year.
3: Humour and irony are effective tools in, in having someone see not only themselves but the world in which they, they live. Once you have someone laughing about anything, you can do other things to do them.
0: I was so surprised. I mean, you, you kind of read about what the subject matter is going to be, then see it's up for, for a comic fiction award. And I thought, well, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> and then I read the book, and there is a laugh outline on every page.
3: Well, that, that I suppose that's, that's nice here. I I never thought of the book as comic at all. And though it's always nice to win an award, I was surprised by this one. Um it's a it's a tough book it's a it's a scary book I mean. and again um, irony is, is is a uh, essential feature to all of my work but it's also an essential feature to any people trying to get through a period of oppression
0: absolutely and and I mean it's it's used so brilliantly in this way I mean from the very opening pages money Mississippi which of course I thought was a, a made-up place but in fact that is exactly a real place and it is where Emmett Till was murdered yes. I love the way, though, that you you use that that word of the place that you know. Small change is is one part of the the place, and all the different names of the people. Now, names are incredibly important to this book. Firstly, in in a comedic way, so you've got some amazing names that that some of the people in the book are called. I, I particularly like uh, Red Jetty, for instance.
3: Well, yeah. So names have always been fascinating to me, but uh, naming is is essentially um, power even in places people who discover places get to name them Mm. and naming children naming places is a way to be proprietary about them in in some regard you're also setting at least in the case of children you're setting them on a course names do a lot of work They, they create expectations they create direction sometimes which is how naming comes into play in, in many different cultures, especially those where people have come into a, a world where language, their their native languages have been taken away from them. Naming is a way to claim language, which is why you have a lot of very inventive names in, in African-American uh, communities.
0: And of course, a lot of people lost their names when they arrived in America for the first Certainly. time.
3: Yes. And that's no small thing. You're losing not only your culture, your name, your religion, and so you're always trying to get back that kind of um, agency.
0: Yeah. Well, so one of the, I mean, I guess that the central part of the book is the fact that you are naming people, the 7,000 people who have been lynched uh, since 1913, which was when Mama Zed was born. And she begins recording the name of every single person who lost their life in this way. And it's hugely important because these are not just unknowns. They were somebody.
3: Yes. In fact, I, I actually performed the practice employed by the character in the novel of writing the names by hand until my hand did hurt. But it was um it was it was very moving, a little bit scary and sort of life changing in that I really did feel just for a few seconds I was extending their their time.
0: Yeah, I forget who it is who said, you, you know, your are always remembered as long as there's somebody on this earth who's still saying your name. And that, I mean, chapter 64 of your book, which is the longest chapter, it's about 10 pages and it contains every single one of those 7000 names. And it's I defy anybody to to read that chapter and not feel that their worldview has altered in some way.
3: Well, the, that all 7000 names are there. I, I, I venture to say they only a few hundred who become representative of all of those names. And nor did I write out all of the names. I wrote out perhaps 1,000, 1,200 names. And what was interesting about making those names is I make up stories and people for a living. And even though the names often are quite usual, I could never have made up so many.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's extremely moving, that chapter. And then we get back to the kind of the really hysterical ones. Junior Junior, whose son is just called Triple J. I mean, Big Mama Yeller, who uses her, her CB handle, even her kids use that. It's wonderfully, I mean, obviously that there's a, a huge amount about race in the book, but it's also about American class, about rednecks who call themselves peckerwoods
3: right away. I'm not being terribly fair to white people in, in, in this novel. And that's a reaction to the years of, of stereotyping that people of color have been subjected to in American culture. In fact, just the other night, I noticed in the paper that a movie was was airing, uh, an Abbott and Costello movie, they were a comedy team in the 30s and 40s, called Africa Screams. And so I I felt we, had, we were beyond those kinds of things and in it african people are of course depicted as more or less furniture borders and childlike adults walking around serving white people that's what all of us have grown up with watching those kinds of depictions of an entire people so i just i i've inverted that racist symbols
0: Mm. And I mean, with the with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think perhaps one should invert that too, because what you're really saying is, Black deaths matter.
3: Exactly. As many of the many of the names on that list that I that I compiled are names of people in the past twenty years.
0: I wonder how you've seen this evolve over time. You're, you're in your sixties now. I wonder. If it became worse under Donald Trump, who is named in in the novel,
3: well, it's to say that it's become worse. One needs only for it to continue for it to become worse. Mm. It's no worse for the people who died, and for Emmett Till, it's still as bad, and anyone who died in the in the years preceding or following. But what is is alarming in the past few years is. The swagger of races has returned at the call of, um, you know, of someone who really has no ideological uh, connection to anything except his own narcissism. But people look for currency, you know, they, they look for currency for their beliefs anywhere they can find it. And so that's the danger of stupid people being in power, I suppose.
0: That was Percival Everett, winner of the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comedy writing. And our final excerpt for this programme comes from an interview with Ruth Ozeki, who won the Women's Prize for Fiction with The Book of Form and Emptiness.
4: Quite recently, I realised that that question, what is real, is, is the question that is at the heart of all of all of the books that I've written you know so much of what I write is about representation and about this uneasy relationship between reality and then the way that we represent reality either through writing or through film or through television or in a mirror you know all of the work I think has that question at its core.
0: Mm. And another thing that you point out is that books are different for everyone nobody has the same experience reading a book and of course the way you get into this is that that one of the narrators is in fact a book
4: that's right That's right. that's right the the narrator of the book of form and emptiness is the book of form and emptiness so in a way it's the book speaking itself into being right and speaking benny into being as well but it also kind of raises this question you know which comes first the book or the boy you know Um, and I do think that you know books to me are alive you know they're alive because when a reader reads a book the reader is bringing that book to life again in a way that is utterly unique and dependent upon that reader's lived experience and so as a result there is no one book of form and emptiness there are as many books of form and emptiness as there are readers who will read it. Mm. And, and re, you know, writing is a collaborative enterprise, you know, and I do it with readers who I will never meet. But yet we're, you know, in this ongoing generative process together. And I think that's really beautiful. It's magic.
0: It really is. Uh, objects play a big role in this and Benny can hear objects talk. And of course, we, or at least I, judge him with a kind of Western look at this and think, well, that's some kind of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more it comes out and there's a, a sort of, I want to call her a Marie Kondo figure, There yes. is a, a kind yeah. of Japanese tidiness queen, but who also believes that, as of course Kondo herself does, is that mm-hmm. you should thank objects. And actually the idea of objects having a voice is not that alien, particularly in Japanese culture.
4: In many cultures, it's not at all alien and, and, you know, in earlier cultures in the West, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not alien either. I, I think it's something that we've, you know, that, that we've lost is this idea that, you know, that, that matter um, has its own agency. And there are philosophers, you know, modern philosophers, Jane Bennett, Timothy Morton, who are doing really interesting work around these, these ideas of vibrant matter. And so I was, of course, reading, I was reading those philosophers as I was writing this book. But my idea, too, in having a having the book narrate itself, what it means is that if you, the reader, are reading the book, you are hearing an object speak. You know, and and so you are complicit in this this voice hearing experience. And so I, I really wanted to kind of question, you know, what makes some kind of voice hearing, you know, why is it society considers some kind of voice hearing, you know, quote, normal, and other kinds of voice hearing pathological. And, you know, given the fact that this that the concept of normal is a social construct. We made it up. You know, society makes that up. Why can't we remake it? Why can't we reimagine normal to make it more generous and more all-inclusive and more compassionate?
0: Absolutely. I don't want to say much more about this book because I want everybody to go out there and buy it and read it. But you did win, the, as we said at the top, the Women's Prize for, for Fiction here in the UK for that. Yes. And in your speech, you really... Talked about the importance of other women, and I yeah. wondered if you could just recap a little of what you said and and why it really matters.
4: You know, it matters now more than ever. I'm not sure if you are as aware of what's going on in the states. We certainly uh, right, are, yeah. A, yeah, as we are. But it, yeah. it's we're in a uh, in a very regressive moment, where I feel that as a woman, you know, all of the advances that that were made during my lifetime are, you know, one by one being erased. You know, it is more important now than ever, I think, for women to continue to speak out and for these stories to be, to be heard. And that's why I am, I'm so grateful that there is a woman's prize, you know, and that, and I was so grateful, you know, to be awarded it. You know, I am just simply part of a long, long lineage of women who, you know, have, spoken and tried to speak and you know who've been silenced and so it's it's more important than ever I think for for women to help each other and you know when I was when I was growing up there were no Asian women writers that was just uh, you know I was 30 before Joy Luck Club was published Um, so you know this was not something that I grew up with so I think it's just you know it's very important to uh, continue to support this idea of lineage.
0: Ruth Ozeki, winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction. And that brings an end to our roundup of the biggest literary prize winners here on Meet the Writers. Thanks to our producer and editor, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.